0: Hey, we're in a little bit of an in-between. This is like the intertestamental period right now if you're a Bible geek. So we start a new series next Sunday in the song of Solomon called Help Me Love, which is like a double entendre. So it's, it's really about a series that's going to be about um, intimacy and relationship to God as well as to one another, and that goes beyond marriage and beyond uh, Sex and all those things that you think of—the Song of Solomon being about. So, invite you into that series starting next week, uh, and then we finished up a series throughout Lent called "I'm Enough," where we've been looking at um, we've been looking at these identity statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John—the seven different "I-ams." And so, we're in this in-between time, uh, and we thought, let's stay parked in the Gospel of John. This beautiful. One of 12, actually, uh, post resurrection appearances that Jesus makes in the Gospels and the Acts. Let's look at this together from the Gospel of John to see what it has for us. And so this is kind of a standalone sermon. And I brought with me, as a way of kind of visual aid for this morning, some things that you're probably looking at wondering, hmm, that's an interesting collection of items. Uh, These are things, as a mission pastor, one of the privileges that I've had of being a mission pastor both at Bethany now and then. our previous church in Pennsylvania, uh, was just to travel the world. I've gotten to travel on most continents now and visit uh, mission partners, both for Bethany, church in Pennsylvania. And it's interesting, every time I go somewhere in the world, every time, as I leave that place, and this is is not the go-by kind of souvenirs time, this is just in that place, the people you spend 10 days with, two weeks with, whatever, give you something. Uh, They give you a gift, a parting gift. A lot of times it's a gift that is meant to remind you of the place. So, for example, this uh, little soccer ball that I was given in Rwanda recently is just a reminder. I I actually gave it to my son Elliot. just made out of banana leaves, I think. So a little reminder of Rwanda. It doesn't have much significance to me, but it reminds me of that place. Others of them are meant to remind me of the relationships that I have with people there. And um, I could tell so many stories. I could spend an entire day telling you stories of things from places where I've been. I'll tell you one story just to help kind of set up this morning about this um, this little item here. It's a tambourine, and uh, it's made out of a piece of PVC pipe and some plastic and some Coke bottle caps. And it doesn't make—I joked with Andrew that he could use that this morning to—or I could, but I wouldn't keep good rhythm— uh, and but it doesn't it doesn't make great noise. It's not the best tambourine in the world. But it comes from Haiti, and so in 2010, our church in Pennsylvania partners with a church in uh, near near uh, Port-au-Prince. This church named uh, Croix de Bequest, which is a community church in near Port-au-Prince. And if you know the story of 2010 in Haiti, there was a massive earthquake that killed hundreds of thousands of people in Port-au-Prince. Uh, and so we as a as a community kind of gathered up some resources decided to to go down and we had not heard from this community that we're partnering with for weeks. And so we we didn't know, there was no communication really happening. Uh, A lot of the systems were broken in Haiti, roads, uh, electricity, water, it was just devastating. So we went down there just after the earthquake and we went to visit this pastor, Pastor Joseph Marius, go ahead and put his picture up. There you go, this is Joseph and uh, we found him I'd never been, uh, I, my, I was new to this community, my, my church had been there before, and we found him actually in his church that had been destroyed. Uh, this is him in his church, you can see, he'd, he'd put up a bunch of tarps and then some a little bed in the back there, uh, and he's literally standing on rubble. He'd been clearing it out for weeks, and they had had a prayer meeting the, the day of the earthquake, and virtually everybody in his church uh, was killed, almost Everybody. And so we met him there, and, uh, and he had this tambourine. He had two, actually. I've got another picture of a larger one, which is like a drum. And he had created these instruments out of some of the rubble and some of the wreckage of that church, and this was literally his worship instrument. So if you think that not having a band this morning is hard, just imagine, right? This is what they were worshiping to. In fact, they had a sheet. He has a sheet. You, can kinda, you can't really see it, but it's in the back and left corner of the, of the picture there. And on that sheet, written in French or in Creole, is Psalm 51.8. If you know Psalm 51.8, listen to this. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. And so how this relates to the passage from today, John 20, this is one of those, like I said, those post-resurrection experiences or appearances that disciples had with Jesus. Jesus literally returns from the dead, rises from the dead, appears to his disciples a dozen times or more. Uh, I think there's like one or two more but at least a dozen times in the gospels and acts and then with paul and but the key with this one in john 20 it is my favorite actually is he walks in and he says to them receive receive the holy spirit it's like jesus comes into this scene of their grief with his arms full of gifts he's just got arms full of gifts he's got more he wants to give them he's not there to scold them <laughs> that they're locked up in a room what are you guys doing he's full of gifts gifts of hope and uh, faith and the power to change the world. We're going to look at those gifts. But a question around those gifts is why? Like my friends give me these gifts as as rem- reminders of our experiences together. Uh, and there's, they're great reminders. Some of them stay in my house. Some of them stay in my office. Uh, every time I see one of these things, I'm reminded of where I've been. Why does Jesus need to give gifts to his disciples? Isn't his story enough? Isn't this word that we have enough and really, I think what they're about, if you understand the gift-giving culture in the ancient Near East, Jesus is a conquering king. And so you see in those days, whenever a king conquered a land, uh, whenever a king, and this is true today, uh, goes out into battle, re- returns, what does the king do? They always had gifts. They, this is the spoils of war. They're expected to bring booty back from their war, right? This is why it says in Psalm 68, Paul quotes this in Ephesians 4, When he ascended, this is God, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. That's what it's talking about. Jesus is a conquering king. And that's what kings did. They plundered land. (laughs) They came home buried in the spoils of war. But in this case, Jesus has not conquered a land. He hasn't conquered people. He's defeated death. Do you hear that? He hasn't come to defeat you. He's not to get you. I mean, otherwise he would have said something pretty harsh to the disciples. He's defeated death. And so he's coming in with arms full of these, not gold and jewels, but carrying the, the gifts that are peculiar to his victory. Remember what John says in the last verse of John, I've come that you might have life. That's why I'm telling you this story. So gifts of life. So let's look at those because the, the, the key here for us is that much as we align our lives with Jesus, receive the gifts that he gives to us, we become sort of repositories of those gifts for other people. That's always the, the way it works in the economy of God. When you receive God's gifts in your life, you become a repository, a place in which those gifts dwell, and then begin to get expressed into the world. And the world needs some of these gifts that we're going to look at. So let's look at these three of these gifts. They're outlined for you in the bulletin, but I'll just go over them real quick. He gives hope beyond despair, faith that seeks understanding, and then power to change the world, okay? So we'll look at those. They're not chronological in the passage, so... If you want to have John 20 open, we'll be in 19 to, 20, or 19 to 30, okay? So first, uh, hope, to, hope beyond despair. Let me give you the context. So actually, the context is, is right there in verse 19. Uh, they're locked in a room where, by the way, commentators think maybe they had the last supper with Jesus. So Remember the foot washing, broken bread, broken body, all these great declarations. They're locked in this room for fear of the Jews. So they're, they're, they're experiencing what we would call despair. And why? If you read the, the plain reading of the story, if you look at Matthew 27, a correlating passage here, they're wanted men and women. So the Jews of the time believed that the, the Jesus' followers had taken the body of Jesus, look at Matthew 27, and hidden it and created this story. So they're wanting to find them. They're, they're kind of, uh, they're, they're wanted for some conspiracy plot. And so this is classic flight, fight, or freeze, freeze mentality. They're frozen. Like, oh my gosh, what do we do? It's also, I think, just looking at the story, uh, a sense of despair rooted in their own sense of failure and loss. So failure because of their inability, utter inability to support Jesus in his darkest hour. Like, think of this. Was his death my fault? Think of Peter. Just sold him out. Is, Is it my fault? Could I have done more? I mean, he probably was asking himself that question. And then the loss. He's their rabbi. He's their mentor. He's their friend. He's like a father. I mean, have you ever lost a mentor? I know some of you have. What do we do? Where do we go? You just go into the darkness of that space. It's hard. They don't know where to go, what to do next. And so Jesus sees this despair bubbling to the surface of their community, and it's paralyzing them. And what does he do to Notice what he doesn't do. He does not, like I said, berate them for their failures, their inadequacy. He doesn't say, you losers. You are such a group of losers never says that to them, not once. He doesn't belittle them, like, hey, you're just blockheads, you're idiots. He doesn't say, here's a straw, now suck it up. You know, he doesn't say that. That's a dad joke. That's free. Okay. He also doesn't say, hey, guys, get out your notebooks. Did you bring your Bibles? Get your Bibles out. Okay, let's have a little Bible study now. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount? Remember the Beatitudes? I preach you this sermon. Great sermon, right? Pretty awesome. What's the fourth Beatitude? What does it mean? He doesn't, he doesn't do Bible trivia. This is, he's like, come on, guys, basic stuff. He doesn't do that. Never. He doesn't do any of the stuff we probably would do. He comes in, as he does in almost every resurrection story, and he just says twice, actually, in this one, peace be with you. That's his message today, peace be with you. And quite simply, what this is about, I think, is Jesus is giving what the Bible elsewhere calls hope to the disciples. And I know hope is not actually used in this text as a word, but it's precisely what Jesus is doing. He's giving them hope when he says, peace be with you, when he shows them his hands and his side. So in other words, uh, this is more than just a mere greeting like we think of, peace, bro. Like, he's not doing that. It's also not a strange handshake like hands inside. That's kind of weird. Like, what are you doing? Too soon. Uh, it's about hope. So think for a moment. What is hope? Think about what you think about hope is. The biblical concept of hope. And your kind of modern-day concept of hope. Think of the modern day, like as our our modern-day English word for hope. The English word connotes things that are really unbiblical. I'll just tell you that. They connotes things like uncertainty. um, I'm not, you know, like wishful thinking. Like if someone says, "Do you know? Do you know that's true?" For example, "Do you know if the Mariners are going to have a winning season?" What do you say? I hope so. Like, do you know what the weather's going to be like tomorrow? I don't know. I hope it's sunny. Uh, do you know if that cancer is malignant? I hope so. Uh, do you know if your baby's a boy or a girl? I, I don't know. Uh, do you know if you got that promotion? I hope I do. So, so you're always going to say, I hope it's true. You, you never, you're never sure until you get the information. And that's what the English word "hopes" about. It's, it's, kind of an un, it's based on uncertainty to a degree, right? That is very different than the biblical idea of hope. The biblical idea of hope, you'll especially see this in Hebrews 11, verse 1. Remember Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we don't yet see. And so, hope, biblically, is, is not based in wishful thinking primarily, though there's a sense in which we need to hold things open-handedly. It's founded and formed in, in sort of a, a confidence and an assurance, as Hebrews tells us. Okay. So, literally, hope in, in the Bible is, li- is a life-shaping certainty. Listen to this. It's my definition. A life-shaping certainty, certainty of something that hasn't happened, but you know is going to happen. Life-shaping certainty of something that hasn't yet happened, but you know it's going to happen. You just know it. That's hope. And I'll, under- I'll just say, I'll just tell you this right now. We, I think we underestimate uh, just how much our lives are shaped in by our believed-in future how much our lives are shaped by our believed-in future, how much we live for the future. Human beings are irreducibly hope-based creatures. We, we have to be, actually. Uh, we, 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 we are ultimately hope, beings of hope. In fact, what you believe about your future really is the main determinant of how you process your present. There's a study, you may have seen this, in 2014... Harvard Medical School study that revealed that a doctor's bedside manner, I know we have some doctors and nurses here, so I'm not putting you down, but a doctor's bedside manner has a dramatic, can have a dramatic impact on a patient's health and their outcomes of their diagnosis. So when the doctors came in and showed a good bedside manner, empathy, uh, made positive remarks, hey, you're looking good today. You know, uh, you're looking better. I think you're going to be out of here real soon. When doctors and nurses did that, that had significant impacts on the patient's efforts to lose weight, lower their blood pressure, and manage painful symptoms. It doesn't necessarily mean they're cured, but it, it had significant impacts on the outcomes that they were experiencing. The same went for the opposite. <laughs> Word to the wise, when doctors were aloof, just gave them the medicine, this clinical, just cold hard facts. Here's your medical chart. You're going to die tomorrow. I thought I just had a cold. But anyway, <laughs> the, results, the results were that the patients believed they were a lost cause. They believed that there was no hope for them, that they, their symptoms often stayed or got worse. Isn't that amazing? So the bottom line is that your believed in future <laughs> dramatically determines how you process and how you respond to your circumstances today. It's what you believe about the future, what, you, what you're certain of, what you know of. it. You can literally, you can't live without hope. That's what this study shows. So this is all to say that the only way you're going to be able to face difficult circumstances in your life today is if you find a way to put your ultimate hope in something bigger than merely today. It's the only way you're going to do it. Uh, And currently, not something like the Mariners winning (laughs) or having a winning season or sunny weather, something ethereal, but something eternal. That's the only way you're going to live the life Jesus is inviting to which is precisely, going back to this story in John 20, why he enters into this gathering and says peace to you and shows them his hands and his side. Think of this. When Jesus shows his hands and his side to the disciples, uh, do you realize what he's doing there? I mean, why does he need to do that? He was victorious, like I already said. He'd risen from the dead. Why present signs of his suffering and his death? Seems like kind of like showing a patient their medical report. Like, why give them that much information? <laughs> Too much information, Jesus. I know you died. What's that about? Here's what I think Jesus is doing. He's giving them a very practical way to ground themselves in hope, to giving them something very practical. He's inviting them to meditate on a recognition of what God had done, to meditate on a recognition of what God had done. He's showing them what God had done. Jesus is bearing the scars of the crucifixion. It's just an opportunity for the first disciples just to see what he'd done. He comes in, you can almost hear him saying, showing his battle scars, the same thing he said on the cross, it's finished. You can lay down your weapons. The war is over. <laughs> I'm victorious. You can rest in my finished work today. You don't have to strive anymore. It's done. Can you hear him saying that to you? And that's why he does this with his, his hands and his side. It's so that he can, there are visceral reminders, as Paul says in Colossians 1.20, that Jesus has made peace by the blood of his cross. He shed blood up there. And he made peace there. I mean, it's, it's kind of a tragedy that we have an empty cross I get why we do it. I mean, the Catholics kind of have it on us. They've re, it's a reminder that Jesus died for us. And he also rose, but he died for us and made peace in his death. So hope is available not only because Jesus is alive, but because he died as well. And he's scarred, and it's, it's visible. And so let me ask you this. He, he, have you ever meditated on a recognition of what God has done for you? Like, literally, I have this Bible. Keith Pepsny, I don't think he's here this morning, but he was using one of these. It's like a journaling Bible. Does any, do any of you guys have one of these? It has, like, the huge margins. Some of you guys have this? Those margins are empty, so I haven't spent a lot of time in Ezekiel 40. Oops. <laughs> so anyway, but in the other places, trust me, I have. Uh, and I have multiple versions of them, so they're all over my house, and so this may just be the one I haven't used recently. Okay. Have you ever had your Bible and then just looked at the life of Jesus or just the life of God, because the whole Bible is about Jesus, really, and just looked at the scars and the wounds of his life and meditated on them. Literally, read a story sometime in the Bible and underline a word here, underline a word there, and just say, Lord, did you need to do that for me? Like, was that necessary? (laughs) Like, why is that here? Did you have to experience all that suffering? It's humbling when you start doing that. If you start to recognize what God's done for you, It's also incredibly affirming because there's nothing that makes you feel the value that Jesus puts on you and nothing that will better equip you for a life of greatness and gracefulness and mission than just to see his hands and his side. That's it. Just to look at him. Fix your eyes on Jesus. That's what uh, Hebrews tells us. Meditate on a recognition of what he's done. So that's hope beyond despair. Okay, that's the first gift. It's a good gift. Second thing I want to look at. And this is like at the end of the passage. Like I said, it's not chronological as I'm looking at it. This is faith-seeking understanding. So it's verses 27 to 31. And uh, here's what John says at the end of the gospel. We already read this, but I'll read it again because I think it's kind of his summary statement. It's kind of a bummer. I was telling some guys this week, I don't know why John uh, put the thesis for the the gospel at the end. I was taught in writing class, to put it at the beginning, but he puts it at the end, verse 30 and 31. Jesus did many other miraculous signs, in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's the point of the gospel of John right there, that you might believe, move from unbelief to belief in every every area of life. So faith is is God's great, Jesus' great gift to us in this gospel. It's all about faith and about belief. It's the core of all the other gifts. It's the The gift in which if you receive faith, and even a child can receive faith, Jesus talks about that. If you receive that, it it unlocks all the other gifts. It unwinds all those other gifts for you. It's a profoundly simple gift, and yet it's very difficult to receive, especially for us postmodern, modern modern Western folks here, Uh, which is why we're held by the story of Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas. I really think the better adjective for Thomas would be Unbelieving Thomas, Uh, and this is why. Rewind his story. So Friday, like all the disciples, he's in horror. Jesus is dying, and it's horrific. Saturday, he's in shock, okay? Sunday, he is so disillusioned. This is Thomas. He doesn't even gather with the other disciples for an evening meal. This is their rhythm in life. They met for dinner every day. They were family. He doesn't gather with them. He's dazed. He's hurt. He's bitter, so much so that on Monday morning, The other disciples go looking for him. There's a suicide watch out for Thomas, you could say. They're worried. Where'd he go? Where'd he lost, Judas? (laughs) Where's Thomas? And of course, they find him, uh, who knows where, and they tell him what happened in his absence, that Jesus appeared to them in their gathering. Apparently, he can walk through doors now because he walked right through the door, very much alive. And Thomas, what does he say? I don't believe it. I mean, I don't believe a word of it, you guys. You guys are, are... smoking something. You're seeing what you want to see. Jesus is dead. I saw him die. Part of me died with him. And the sooner you all accept that fact, the better off you'll be, right? Get on with your lives. You can kind of hear that. That's my paraphrase. Give it up. But, and then you can kind of see Peter leaning in. Hey, Thomas, I saw him. And I, of all people, should have reasons, right, to not believe this story. I saw him, and I tell you what, he was as real as you are right here. And Thomas is so cold. He's just so full of bitterness. You can hear the edge in his voice. Unless I see the nails in his marks in his hand and put my hand in his side, I'll never believe. And my mom always told me, "Be careful when you say never." <laughs> so you fast forward a week. Same room, same gathering, except this time Thomas is there with them. So something has happened during the week, and he's eating. And guess what? Jesus again appears in their gathering. Somehow gets in the door. Except this time he's speaking directly to Thomas. Just to Thomas. Peace be with you, Thomas. And no sarcasm. No bitterness toward Thomas. You can imagine. I'd I'd have a few words. And he says, hey, examine my hands. I know that's kind of what you were hoping for. Holds out his hands. And then he's beginning to undo his garment, his outer garment. Hey, stick your hand in my side. Don't be unbelieving. Believe. Don't be unbelieving. Believe. Jesus is essentially inviting Thomas back into the story of God, saying, hey, I know you've moved from a really uh, fragile belief into this very bitter and cold unbelief. Move back toward belief. It's just a movement. Move from unbelief to belief. That's what Jesus is always challenging us in. That's discipleship. Uh, Sean's friend, my friend, Caesar describes discipleship this way, moving from unbelief to belief in every area of life. That's, that's discipleship, moving from unbelief to belief. And there's a lot of unbelief in us, all, all kinds of areas of our lives we don't believe in God. And Thomas is being invited into that same belief. And look at him, he does. <laughs> like he, almost immediately, you can just see him on his knees, on his face, in awe of this moment, and he utters the most profound and heartfelt declaration of faith in the entire gospel, my Lord, my God. I mean, wow, right? Which is, I think, another way of saying, hey, Jesus, I see it. I see everything you've done for me. I'm meditating on that now. And I, I know I can be accepted for who I am, even in my unbelief. I see that because of your wounds, I can be free. I see that I don't need to be afraid anymore, as we saying. I, I see that your wounds are enough. That's faith. And uh, that's amazing, the kind of faith that Thomas is given by Jesus. It's a great gift. A faith that completely drops all of his conditions. faith that moves from if, Jesus, if you'll do whatever, to faith that moves, it moves into into. Faith from if to into. Let me describe that real quick, because that's the only kind of faith there is. There's never ifs with faith. It's always into. So interestingly, this word believe, belief that Jesus invites Thomas into believe, stop unbelieving, is a is a Greek word, pisteo, and it's always my mom also said be careful when you say always. It's always used with the preposition ice, E I S, which means into. Unfortunately though, in every English translation I can find, it's not. Maybe the JB Phillips has it. I don't know. We'll look. So Jesus is really saying, hey Thomas, believe into me. Literally. <laughs> Touch my hands. Put your hand in my side. And it doesn't get translated that way. And because of this mistranslation, there has been a door opened to all kinds of unbelief in our culture, in our church. Conditional faith. When I speak of our church, I'm not talking necessarily about Bethany, Northeast, just the church. So don't hear this as me putting anyone down. But faith if you'll put something into my life that's missing. Faith if you'll take something out of my life that I can't seem to get rid of, you know. Faith if you'll explain these questions to me. I don't understand them. I'll have faith if I un- understand them. Faith if you'll give me this or if you'll give me that. Faith if, right? If, 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 if. And Thomas does that. If I can touch his hands, if I can touch his side, I'll believe. If, if, if. And Jesus shows up, and he doesn't invite, he doesn't invite Thomas to that. He says, Thomas, believe into me. Believe into me. And boy, I mean, the best real illustration, because I know that's kind of gruesome to think of like putting your hand into somebody's side like that. Best illustration I can think of from my life is rappelling. Has anyone here rappelled? Like you've been to summer camp and you know what I'm talking about. Or you rock climb? A few of you guys? This is Bethany. We're supposed to be like all rock climbers. Okay, so rappelling. I remember the first time rappelling when I was a kid uh, at Camp Reed in Spok- outside Spokane. Um, YMCA camp. Did you go to Camp Reed? What? Bro, what's up? So cool. I knew we had Spokane come, but that's great. So, summer camp, there's this dining hall, and there's this rock, kind of a rock chimney, and we, we would rock climb on this during the camp session, and kind of rappel down the chimney, you know, and like, we, we learned to rock climb that way. And that was practice for what was coming at the end of camp. We'd go up this hike to this rock face, and then we'd rock climb up it, and I, I imagine it being like 100 feet tall, it was probably 10, but so we rock climb up this thing, and then that, that was easy. Like, I loved it. I was like a little mountain goat. But then we had to rappel down. And if you've ever rappelled, you know this. Completely different story. Just wa- You have to, like, lean off the edge of this cliff into nothingness, you know, 50, 60, 75 feet of air between you and the ground. And here's the key. For the rappel to work, the only way to get back down to earth is if you put all of your weight on that rope, all of it. You can't kind of put some of your weight on the rope you know, kind of like keep one foot up in, on the rock there and then walk your way down. All of your rope has, all your way has to go into that rope. You have to completely trust the rope or the repeller or whoever to support you, to sustain your weight. Not the, no conditions. I mean, like, you just have to say, hey, this harness and this rope, it's all I got between me and the ground. And you trust. And you, and you literally, you rest. Like, it's, the, it's a resting position. You rest into the rope. And that's how repelling works. With every ounce of your life, that's faith into Jesus. It means resting in the completed work of Jesus. It means believing so deeply into Jesus that, that you put all your life on him, all your weight into him. We, and this is why we asked our new members to commit to their, uh, s- submitting their financial choices, their sexual choices, the words they used. Did you think that was peculiar? The activities they'd pursue. Every ounce of their being. Every fiber of their, every, their weight of their life. And all of us are carrying a lot of weight right now. Weight of your relationships, weight of your work and your career, weight of your health, weight of your children's future, the weight of the world. You're carrying so much weight. And Jesus is saying, would you just rest in me? Like, would you just drop all your conditions and all your ifs, all that weight, and just build your life into him? Just give it to him. That's what it means to believe. It's not a set of doctrines. It's just, it's 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 into Jesus. I want to be in your life, Jesus, and I want you in my life. So that's what faith-seeking understanding is, just resting into Jesus, coming so into his life that he comes into yours fully, okay? So that's the second thing. So hope beyond despair, faith-seeking understanding. Let's look at this final one real quick. Power to change the world. This is a real good one. So verses 21 to 23, third final gift, in the middle there, is this gift of power. And here's what Jesus says, verses 21 23 to 23. Peace be with you again. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. He said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. Now, there's a lot. There's, there's enough for a sermon series here, by the way. Like, entire books have been written on these Three verses or two verses, like debates and all kinds of stuff. Like, whether, what, what does Jesus mean about retaining forgiveness here? Hmm. And then, like, the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you're a careful reader of the Bible, you're like, wait, I thought that was in Acts 2. What happened? Did he give the Spirit twice? I mean, it's confusing. And those are good sermons, um, great books, nice debates, but I don't have time for that. So we're going to talk about, and Seth's cueing me here. I'm going to talk about the context. As I've said, Bill Gates has said many times, context is king. Okay? So the context of this gift is really critical in understanding the gift itself. Remember, the, the gift is, is power to change the world. Okay? And here's the gift. Notice how, what Jesus does in verse 22. With that, he breathed on them, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. So the power is the Holy Spirit to change the world. But notice how Jesus delivers that. He breathed on them, <laughs> or breathed into them which is kind of weird. Why did he do that? I mean, he didn't need to do that, did he? Like, I mean, Jesus is one with God and the Father, co-eternal. So he could have just waved his hand, right? Snapped his fingers like Richard does. Uh, He could have just said it. He could have said nothing. could have winked an eye. Like, he could have done any number of things to deliver the Holy Spirit, and yet for some reason, peculiar reason, he decides to breathe. Strange, right? Right? as you, if you think about it, because if you really recognize he didn't have to do that, it's symbolic of something. Jesus is doing this to help us understand the deeper meaning of this story. There's a deep, deep meaning of this story, this moment. So think about this for a second. If you ever breathed into someone? I'm not talking about your significant other. Okay. That was a bad joke. Okay. So, <laughs> like, like, you know, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. So if you ever pulled somebody out of the water, I was a lifeguard growing up, Liberty Pool. You've been to Liberty Pool? Oh my goodness! Are we brothers from another mother? So Liberty Pool, I was a lifeguard there um, when I was growing up. And I had to do this a few times. Liberty was a little bit like a Spokane inner city pool, so I know that sounds like a non you can't have a Spokane inner city, but there's such a thing. So we had this pool and I and lifeguard there. And this kid jumps off the diving board, high dive, I remember this like it was yesterday, just like uh, that movie Sandlot. He jumps off and just like a rock to the bottom. And what I didn't know is I'd been a lifeguard for a long time that, like, the second you start taking water into your lungs, it's done. And so I, I get down there. I you know, jump off the chair, pull him out, and he is, like, his lungs are full of water. And so what do you do when your lungs aren't working? And, like, when you see some, I mean, it's like, what do I do? Well, you start breathing into them. And so that they can receive the air in your so Their lungs will begin working like your lungs will work. Okay. And that's a real-life example of what Jesus is doing here in John 20. Like, all theologians and commentators say that he, this is called the resurrection insuffilation. There's a, uh, there's a good word for you, Insufflation. Like, that literally means to blow into. He's blowing the resurrection into their lives, right? Blowing the Holy Spirit into their lives. And in doing so, I think he's, he's, in, he's reminding them of two stories in the Bible. These are so critical as you read this. The story of creation and the story of exile, Okay? So in the story of creation, Genesis 2, God forms, you might know the story, Adam, from some mud, and then what does God do? Creates his person. Adam, hey, creates you. And then he breathes into Adam's nostrils, after which, not before which, not independent of which, Adam becomes a living creature. You could even say that Adam becomes spirited in that word. The Latin, interesting, the Latin word for spirit or spiritual is the word for breath. Did you know that? So spiritus, Latin word, means breath or aliveness. God is, spirituality is aliveness at all levels. And so what this means is Jesus is, this is his recreation of the, of the disciples' community, of their world. He's saying, like he's drawing them back to that story. He's reminding them that they need to depend on God for every moment of life. There's no independence from Jesus anymore. And, and biologically, and spiritually, as a community, they, de- they depend on him. Their breath, their, their very being depends on Jesus. So he breathes into them to remind them of that story. So creation. But also, this is so key, another time, exile. And, which is a time well after the time of creation. Specifically, he's evoking this time of their national exile in, in Ezekiel. Uh, chapter 36, 37, if you read it sometime. Uh, so Ezekiel, there's this vision he gets of the Valley of Dry Bones. Remember this story? If you've been around the church, you've heard this. He's given this vision of a valley full of not just dead bodies and not just skeletons and not just bones, but dry bones, like long dead, like bleached out, just bones. And and God reveals to him in this vision that this represents the entire nation of Israel, hundreds of thousands of people that have gone through the desert and are now in exile and dead, 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 long dead. Which is to say that in that time, they had been away, been away from their land for a while, Israel. they have been put into this dominant culture that was many times larger than theirs. So they're scattered. Uh, and then they believe, within a few generations it happens, they're going to lose their national identity. Uh, they're going to be absorbed, assimilated. They, they won't even think of themselves as a people anymore. They'll lose their language, their culture, their food, their religion. They're on their way to death as a nation. And so their national identity is dying, their spiritual, they're, their hope is dying, they're beyond death. That's what Ezekiel's telling, what God's telling them. And, and this vision of dry bones is just a picture of how they thought of themselves, because it hadn't actually happened yet. They weren't completely dried up, there's still a seed of hope. And the promises of their past glory weren't completely dead, though they felt dead. And so this is why God does the next thing in this story. He says, he says to Ezekiel, speak to these dry bones. Hear the word of the Lord. This is Ezekiel 37, 4 and 10. I'm going to attach tendons to you, like reverse this process. Make flesh come upon you, cover you with skin. I'm going to put breath into you. You'll come to life. Come breath, he says. Come from the four winds. Come spirit into these slain that they might live. And here's Ezekiel 37:10. So I prophesied, he commanded me, and I breathed, and breath entered them, and they came to life. And they stood on their feet as a vast army. And there it is. This is what Jesus is trying to say in John 20. That he's coming in their despair and their unbelief. And he said, hey, I can see how dried up your hope is. I can just see you're as good as dead. You're in this room. You don't believe you have anything left off for the world. Um, you believe that your Savior, your long-hoped-for Messiah is dead. You believe that your courage is gone. You believe you don't even know where you're gonna go next. You lost you left family, you left job, everybody thinks you're just idiots. You're completely dying on the inside. And some of you will die on the outside. So your confidence in God's future is gone, it's withering away. You don't believe that you have anything left to offer. And because of that, let me, rather than going nuclear on you and just starting the whole thing all over again like Noah's flood, or going out and finding a brighter group of men and women, you know, a little more charismatic or more naturally, spiritually gifted, or thumping you over the head with like a Bible full of revelation, like maybe you'll get it through your thick skull someday if I just hit you hard enough (laughs) that Jesus loves you. Let me just breathe into you. And not just life so you can walk out these doors, like I said, it's creation, but life that empowers you for mission. He's recommissioning the disciples. That's what the exile story is all about, commissioning them to their great calling to be a blessing to all nations. They were called to that. We're called to that as a church. And God is saying, hey, I'm recommissioning you to that. I I love that last line in Ezekiel's prophecy. I breathed and breath entered them, and they came back to life, and they stood on their feet as a vast army. And do you see that? Jesus is entering into their gathering. Maybe it's our gathering our withered up hope, our confidence, our lack of confidence, our lack of vision, he just enters in, breathes the breath of God, which is his vision and his mission for the world. Just by breathing. (laughs) Think about that. You just took a breath. And nobody had to teach you to do that. Uh, It's just a, a breath, one breath, changed the entire course of history. Think of the church today. One breath, changed the entire course of history. It's amazing what Jesus does here at the end of gospel, the Gospel of John. He just breathes a single breath to awaken a small but very vast army, not of soldiers but of saints, saints that are be, being sent into the, the world as the presence of Christ. I want to conclude this way. It's just this little article. It's short, trust me. I found it in the New York Times Magazine about a year ago, actually, July twenty second, 2016. And I, I, I found it, and it, it triggered, it just caught my attention because it's, it's entitled How to Breathe. I thought I knew how to breathe. You're pretty good. Here's what this author says. Uh, Breathing is a powerful involuntary mechanism. Uh, according to Gioria Fiedman, who's an 80-year-old Argentine-born Israeli clarinet player. <laughs> There's a mouthful for you. Still, she says, you can breathe better by acting purposefully, and observing some basic rules. And here are her rules. Don't smoke. Take as much as you want. Air doesn't cost you any money. And there's no tax. (laughs) Go to the swimming pool or to the ocean a lot. Because in water, you have to carefully calculate how much you inhale before you go underwater. Relax. All of you just relax right now. And take a breath. Inhale deeply. Sit up straight. And finally, she says, appreciate your lungs. And she says, when you know how to breathe, the word stress is not in your dictionary. Uh, a sentiment that she says is, fa- is borne out in scientific studies that show focused breathing exercises can reduce symptoms of such things as stress, anxiety, OCD, depression, schizophrenia, insomnia, and ADD. <laughs> Just by breathing. She she uses this illustration of playing a wind instrument as a restorative practice. So she has a group of kids that worked with her. They're in this thing called Bronco Boogie, (laughs) which is this asthmatic British kids that exhibits asthma. She noticed after they do this, practice breathing, 70% decrease in nighttime symptoms of asthma, 58% decrease in daytime symptoms, just by learning to control your breath. And this is the last part that I love. She says this, that breathing allows you to sing. And that the human body is at its core an instrument of song. Breathing allows you to sing. And the human body is at its core an instrument of song. And I love that because <laughs> that's what the church is, is we are a song. We're meant to be a song to the world. And all we need to do is receive the breath of God into our lives. We are instruments of song. And so I want to invite us this morning to respond simply by singing together. Literally. Andrew's going to lead us. That our lives, individually, collectively, just might be a sort of song. And And as you're singing this morning, uh, whatever gift you, you need to ask for more of, because Jesus wants to give you these great gifts, if it's this hope, if it's more faith, if it's just a deep confidence in his indwelling presence, Would you sing that in our time together? So as we go out, we'd be evidence of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for these great gifts. Thanks that they're not just reminders that sit on a stage, stories to tell, but that they are are living gifts, that they're gifts among us, within us, that as we receive your hope, you literally fill our lives with that hope. You give us the confidence that we need to take steps of faith this coming week, God. As we receive uh, faith into, as we as we lean into you, you give us a greater ma- measure of faith, a childlike faith, that just deep trust in who you are. As you breathe into us, you restore us, God. You love that vision from Ezekiel you gave us. You put flesh and our bones, muscle, tissue. You re- restore our bodies. So God, would you do that work today? Bring your gifts to bear in our lives. We thank you for them. Praying in Christ's name. Amen.